Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, episode 80. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And the title of today's episode is Hit Me With Your Best Shot, a brief review of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. And really to kick this one off, uh, I think it's appropriate to start with a patient case. So we'll have this example patient who's a 75-year-old female who was admitted with peritonitis and found to have a small bowel perforation, and she underwent a repair of that perforation. So on post-operative day one, things were looking good. So they started some sub-Q heparin on her, 5,000 units, subcutaneous TID for VT prophylaxis. And over the next several days, with the help of her surgery and IV antibiotics, she was doing great. And then on post-operative day seven, she's almost ready to leave the hospital. And her CBC, they note that her platelet count decreased from 170,000 to 80,000 over the course of about a day. In addition to that, they noted that she had new left lower extremity swelling and pain, and a diagnostic workup suggested that that was a new DVT for her. So in this context, we have a patient with a platelet trend that is suggestive of thrombocytopenia for sure. The timing of that platelet decline is very rapid. She has a new thrombus, and she has no other clear causes of a new onset of thrombocytopenia, especially given her clinical improvement, how late in the course we are, as opposed to if this platelet decline happened when she first walked into the hospital. There's a lot of factors there that would put us at a clinical suspicion, a high clinical suspicion of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So we're going to talk mostly about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia in terms of how you know it's not that, because this is a very rare case, but this is a typical case that you may see in clinical practice. All right, so I think the first question, again, is is HIT's kind of like one of those, the, the white whale or one of those rare things that you think about, that you talk about it, but as far as what it really, you know, like serotonin syndrome, you know, don't always see it, so I think it's really important to know what, so Dr. Kane, Dr. Patel, what, what really is HIT? So I think the patient here cannot catch the break, and probably... Dr. Kane, in your setting, you probably have experienced patient cases, but HIT on our side, Dr. Schumann on the you know outpatient side, it is a super rare condition unless somebody was diagnosed and now they are on a chronic anticoagulation, which we will talk about in a little bit. So it is a very rare condition, which is immune-mediated um, that causes thrombocytopenia. And basically what happens is the platelet counts decline, and with that decline of platelet counts, there is actually a higher risk of thrombus formation. So there is cases of hypercoagulability in our patient case. She did develop a new thrombus. This is actually what opposite of what you think it would be. So typically when you think of low platelet counts, you think about bleeding. But in the case of HIT, because of this immune-mediated response, it actually activates your platelets, and that platelet activation causes a thrombus anywhere in your body, in the arteries, in the veins, doesn't matter. So it's really the opposite of what you might expect in terms of bleeding risk versus clotting risk. Right. Exactly. As a student, this was something I always wrestled with. I was like, but you know, in Latin terminology, we learned about things and words meaning drop, and then this drop that causes an increased risk. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say the counterintuitiveness of it, because that was my, my brain at the time. And even maybe still today, it was still trying to wrap around that whole uh, dichotomy. 
So there must be an interesting pathophysiology behind this. Yeah, so basically what happens is the platelet cells themselves release this protein called platelet factor 4 or PF4. And for whatever reason, PF4, this protein that your body makes, can form a complex with heparin molecules. So this is heparin most commonly or even low molecular weight heparin like anoxaparin or Lovenox. So this complex is actually what your body can form an immune-mediated response to. And in the case of HIT, that immune-mediated response is an IgG antibody. And that IgG antibody, when it finds this PF4 heparin complex, it activates. So that IgG antibody will activate platelets, and that platelet activation will form clotting. It will consume platelets. You'll get thrombocytopenia as you form this immune-mediated response. Well, that's a very interesting mechanism of how a clot can develop even though platelet counts are going down. But once again, to emphasize that, you know, the true diagnosis of HIT is very rare. But patients in the hospital can have many different reasons to have low platelet counts, the thrombocytopenia. And that's really the challenge here. So HIT comes up so commonly, at least in the inpatient side, because we see a ton of patients with thrombocytopenia, but we don't actually see true hit that often, but it's always something that we're worried about because if you have true hit, your risk of dying is actually quite high. Your risk of having arterial thrombi that cause you to have amputations or you to get very, very sick, that is actually fairly high. So it's one of those very rare but very serious complications of something that we do commonly in many patients in that hospital setting, which is VT prophylaxis with heparin or low molecular weight heparins. And so when I was in school, I briefly remember us talking a little bit about this this idea about a 4T score as a way. And again, I, I don't really employ this in my clinic. Most of the time when we see, you know, thrombocytopenia, it's, it's on the outpatient setting more like things from medication induced, for example. So, but this 4T score seems to be something that we can maybe use to um, to kind of evaluate our suspicion of it. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, for the purpose of an audio-based podcast, uh, we can't go into every detail. There's a lot to it. And I would really encourage the listeners to look at the review article that's posted at helixtalk.com. This is a citation by Salter and colleagues 2016. It's a really good review that includes the 4T score in a table format. But in terms of what is the 4T score, it's four different things to think about in terms of whether this patient may or may not have HIT. It's to help you decide what is your actual clinical suspicion of HIT in this patient. So I bet all the four T's start with the T. One would think, but in this case it doesn't. The first three do start with a T. So it's thrombocytopenia, timing, and thrombosis. And then they kind of copped out a little bit, and the fourth, what should have been a T, ended up being an O, and it's other, and they capitalized the T and other to get to their four T's. Maybe O silent? It's a silent O. Okay, yes, that's oh, correct. Good to know. <laughs> so we'll start with the first T, which is thrombocytopenia. And this is the one that everyone thinks about when you think about HIT, because the T in HIT is thrombocytopenia. And what they're really talking about here is the trend in your platelet count over a period of time. So the highest clinical suspicion of HIT is in someone who has a platelet decline rapidly of more than 50%, and that platelet count still stays above 20,000. So in HIT, it's very rare to have profound thrombocytopenia, but it's very common that you'll have these massive rapid declines of more than 50% of your platelet count. And again, clinically, this is the thing that really sets off the alarm bells, but there's three other things that make up your 4T score, and that's what the value of this 4T score is, is to not just think about that 50% decline in platelets. So I'm guessing that the next one has something to do with time. That sounds like another nice alliterative T word. 
Exactly. So here, you know, as we said, this is an immune mediated reaction. If we know about the immune mediated reaction, sometimes it takes a while for our body to develop this IgG antibodies, right? So the suspicion is very high if the decline of platelets occurs within less than a day, if patient has had heparin exposure within the past 30 days. So, you know, patient has been exposed to heparin before and now the antibodies are kind of ready to hit the platelets. And so the appearance of hit happens within a day of receiving that second time heparin. If the patient has not received heparin in past, because uh, IgG antibodies take a little bit longer to develop, this appearance happened anywhere between five to 10 days of getting the heparin therapy. And then the third T is thrombosis. And if you go back to our patient case, this again is one of those things that will set off the alarm bells in someone who's, especially if they're on, let's say a heparin drip or full dose Lovenox and they have a new clot while they're fully anticoagulated, that should always raise a, a huge alarm bell in terms of why did they develop a clot while they're on an anticoagulant. And in this case, in our patient, she wasn't fully anticoagulated, but we were giving her DVT prophylaxis. So any new clot may be a sign of hit with another T. So H-I-T-T, that's hit with thrombosis. And the worrisome thing about HIT is that you could develop a clot by activating these platelets and forming a new DVT, an arterial thrombus, a PE, a stroke, an MI, any clot anywhere in your body. In addition to that, again, we kind of go away from the algorithm or the nomogram a little bit, and we add in here thinking about did the patient have any skin manifestations or allergic type reaction to the heparin? And if they did, we kind of group that together within this thrombosis type category. And so then the fourth category, and kind of the cheat one would be the other causes, again, with a capital T or a silent O. So, yeah, 3T plus O probably didn't sound as, as catchy, Dr. Kane. So we went through the 4T. So thinking about HIT, one of the things we look at is, is some of the other causes of it. Again, I think medications where we think sometimes with something like Depakote and seeing like a thrombocytopenia or a pancytopenia, but other causes to things like infection or surgery, trauma, hemodilution, intravascular devices, a balloon pump, CRRT, something like that. There's a lot of other things. And so it becomes almost, I guess, a diagnosis of exclusion to some extent too that you're looking for these other factors. Yeah, and this is clearly the most subjective item within our 4T score, which is one of the reasons why this scoring system is beat up a little bit is that iterator reliability may not be as good because of this one item in terms of, Dr. Schumann, you mentioned valproic acid. I'm sure you see a lot of that in your mm -hmm. clinic. Oh yeah. I see very little of that in the ICU, but I see a lot of beta-lactams that we give high doses of that, which are potentially implicated in causing drug-induced thrombocytopenia. So um, in terms of what's on your radar, what do you constitute as like a very likely cause or not, that can cause some subjectivity here. But really what we're concerned about is our, the patient example that we started with. She has almost no reason to have new onset rapid thrombocytopenia. Something is different, right? And the fact that there is no other clear-cut cause should, again, raise that red flag in terms of is this hit or not. Just combining the four T's that we just discussed, remember, four T score is to rule out the hit, but it cannot confirm the diagnosis of hit. So all these different categories we talked about gives a patient a score anywhere between zero to two for each of the four categories. So if the score is low, then the patient almost does not have hit. But if it's four or higher, then we probably need to do more testing to confirm hit. Again, four T score does not confirm the diagnosis. 
And the way I think of the value of a 4T score is to basically not send off confirmatory testing to save everyone the time and hassle because it is so rare that hit actually happens. This is a way to kind of stop and say, nope, it's not hit. Don't worry about sending any additional testing. So in our patient, as an example, again, I would really encourage the readers to take a look at that table in the review article that we referenced because there's a lot more detail there. But her 4T score is either a 7 or an 8, depending on that fourth category, the other category. Because her score is four points or more, we have to do more testing to see if she may or may not have hit. So what are these different tests that we can do to confirm after performing a 4T evaluation? So as Dr. Kane mentioned, again, we've got the scoring done. So if we if we know that rather than just, just test everyone to save a little bit of time and effort, again, go ahead and if the score is high, you start with a HIT IgG antibody test. And again, if it's positive there, do we have an answer? Unfortunately, no. And this is... For sure, the, the most common problem in, in terms of the diagnostic workup for HIT, people confuse this all of the time. So the IgG antibody has a very high false positive rate. So if that antibody is positive, it means you have the antibody, but that antibody may not be causing the syndrome we call HIT. So um, the only value in that HIT antibody is if it's negative. If it's negative, you do not have the antibody, therefore you cannot have HIT, case closed. But if it's positive, we have to do even more testing. And that test would be? So it's called a functional assay, where not only are we looking, do you have the antibody, but we're looking at, can we anger that antibody by throwing some heparin on it? So we literally take the patient's blood and add heparin to it and see, can we activate that platelet using the heparin that we add in in this test tube? And there's two flavors that are commonly used of this functional assay. One is called an SRA, a serotonin release assay. And then the other commonly used one is called a HIPAA test. HIPA, and that's a heparin-induced platelet activation test. And both of these are really, really good. So they give you really high specificity, really high sensitivity. And what do you think is the most common question when I tell a student that this is like the best test for HIT? How long does it take? And how much does it cost? Exactly. And that's really the, the two problems with SRA or the HIPAA test is that it takes a long time to come back. We're talking a couple days in most institutions, and it costs a lot more than sending the, the HIT antibody test. So at this point, really from a diagnostic workup, we've tried to do as many things that we can to not send the SRA or the the HIPAA because it takes so long and it costs so much money. So we look at the 4T score to argue that we shouldn't send anything else. We look at the HIT IgG antibody to say, well, the antibody isn't there, so we don't need to do this more expensive, lengthier test. If we get to this point, we, we truly do trust the results of that SRA or the HIPAA test. And once the results are positive, how do we treat the patient is another uh, component that we should discuss. So again, because the name says it's heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, the culprit over here is heparin or any type of low molecular weight heparin. So we should stop all different forms of heparin that patient is receiving. So in our patient case, she was receiving the prophylaxis heparin three times a day. Um, But we should also look out for any type of heparin flushes, any type of Um, devices that might be um, impregnated or coated with the heparin, they all should be removed. Now, Dr. Kane, do we wait till we get this uh, assay test back before we stop the heparin? Because again, it seems like at that point, we've delayed enough time. So like, what's what's the timeline there? So if you're worried enough about HIT to actually send off your diagnostic evaluation, you really should at a minimum stop all forms of heparin. If your clinical suspicion is very high, you'll actually initiate therapy for HIT empirically until you know, based on your confirmatory testing, whether the patient truly has it or not. 
So everyone, if you're going to send off the test, everyone, you will DC all heparin products and forms. If your clinical suspicion is really high, you're going to initiate your drug of choice, which is Argatraban in those patients, until you can either prove that they do or don't have HIT, and then act accordingly based on that. Now, Argatraban, again, I, I think of the name of it, and it looks like something like, you know, the, the a band part, so it kind of sounds like dabigatran, so I'm assuming the mechanism of action pretty similar there. Correct. It's a direct thrombin inhibitor, but unlike dabigatran, Dr. Schumann, it's not an oral drug, it's an IV continuous infusion. So that's, administration-wise, it's a little bit of a hassle for the hospital team. And it's kind of like heparin and how we adjust and dose and monitor it. So it is a continuous infusion. Dosing is highly variable. There's a lot of interpatient variability. So the dosing is adjusted based on an APTT, just like with heparin. And typically the APTT goal is very similar to the same goal that you would use for a heparin infusion. And it's always going to be institution specific. So the only difference really is that because the half-life typically is shorter with our gatraban versus heparin, we'll, we'll be rechecking PTTs more frequently because you get to steady state faster. So we can adjust them quicker and get them hopefully to their goal APTT faster with our gatraban. And this is going to be a full anticoagulation, right? And not prophylaxis dose of ergotraban. Exactly. So like in our patient case, her 4T score is really high. Our clinical suspicion is very high. We're going to fully anticoagulate her, even though she was only getting sub-Q heparin for two reasons. One, we're really, really worried about HIT. And two, she has a new DVT that we have to anticoagulate her for anyway. So how is this drug eliminated in the body? I know you're always back in that renal versus hepatic. With Argatraban specifically, it's hepatically eliminated, but that isn't really the full story. We have a lot of data, especially in my neck of the woods in the critically ill patient, that their dosing requirements are dramatically lower than a dosing requirement for someone like our patient case where they're healthy. So as an example, for a critically ill patient, if the, especially if they have multi-organ failure, they will literally need 10 times less of a dose Ooh. than someone who has normal organ function. So in critically ill patients, we'll initiate somewhere between 0.2 and 0.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute versus a normal dose in someone with normal organ function. They're going to have a dosing requirement, at least initially, closer to two micrograms per kilogram per minute. So literally a factor of about 10 times different. So then as far as other options to go with, one of the things I remember when I was in pharmacy school talking with the, the resident at the time at ARC on our critical care rotation was this idea about fondaparinux and whether or not that's really another option. So Dr. Kane, what's, what's, the, what's the current thought as far as that medication? So I'd say that the general thought is that you can use fondaparinux for HIT treatment with a, a, a very small caveat. And basically the, the caveat is that the chemical structure of fondaparinux it shares a pentasaccharide molecule with heparin and low molecular weight heparins. It's a, a pure 10A inhibitor, but because it has this little fragment of heparin, there's always a concern that that little fragment may induce this immune-mediated response we call HIT. There are a number of case reports. We're talking less than 10 case reports that fondaparinux may have caused HIT, but the community as a whole has said that we have enough data that fondaparinux can treat HIT that those case reports, if they are true, it is exquisitely rare that fondaparinux would actually cause HIT. And we have plenty of data that says that it's a reasonable treatment approach for the treatment of HIT. And it sounds like it because it's a, you know, sub-Q injection. So if patient were to go home, um, they can, you know, don't have to worry about 
IV administration of ergatraban, we can easily switch them to Fondaparinox. The caveat, the second caveat here is that it is has a long half-life and it's renally eliminated. So uh, if your patient has a severe renal impairment, probably we're not going to be able to use this drug. And I can tell you like in the ICU setting, because the Fondaparinox half-life is so long, even if you have good kidney function versus anoxaparin, let's say, we're unlikely to use it very often because we do so many procedures to our patients. We have to hold anticoagulation. If they bleed, we want it to go away quickly. So I'm sure on the outpatient side, fondaparinux is used much more commonly than, let's say, on the inpatient side, especially in an ICU-type setting. So the next option we've got there, bavalarudin, and again, this one, direct thrombin inhibitor, continuous IV titration to APTT goal. So Kind of, kind of similar, again, renally eliminated. So again, we've still got to keep an eye on their renal function here. Yeah, and bivalarudin is interesting because it is FDA approved for PCI, so putting a stent in, in patients with a history of HIT. It's not approved for HIT, but it has been studied for HIT. Whereas Argatraban is the only drug on the U.S. market currently that has an FDA approval for the treatment of HIT, which was one reason why it is considered the drug of choice for HIT. And then... The CHESS 2012 guidelines mention a few other therapies that are used for HIT, but unfortunately, they are not in the U.S. market. There are going to be recombinant heridins like lepirudin or desirudin, and these are kind of derived based on the leached salivary glands. That sounds delightful. That sounds delightful. Well, it's so interesting because, I mean, leech, obviously, you have to make your blood thinner in order to pull it out of you. So we said, hey, that sounds like a drug, right? So they, they did derive it from leeches. When I was in school, I still remember learning about leperudin. So when we talked about HIT, we said, well, you're going to use leperudin in these cases or argatraban in these cases. Well, it turns out two years after I graduated in 2012, they actually pulled leperudin off the market. Uh, the manufacturer did. Uh, there, there was a lot of reasons for that to be pulled off the market, but that one is off the market completely. And desirudin is on the market still, but it's supported by literally a study of eight patients. And I think five of them got active drug and three got some other comparator drug. Really not a robust amount of data here to really support that use. Yeah, that's kind of not really a confidence booster, is it? Not so much. And really the only other one that is recommended by the guidelines is called denaparoid. This is a low molecular weight heparinoid, as the denaparoid suggests. So it doesn't have any heparin or heparin-like fragments to it. But the manufacturer got rid of this one in 2002. So you'll still see these products mentioned in the CHESS guidelines, even though they're 2012 guidelines. But it's important to know that you can't use any of them because they're either not on the market or really not preferred because of poor quality data. So we're really back to Argatraban, Fondaparinux, maybe by Valerudin, but mostly Argatraban as a drug of choice for HIT. And then Dr. Patel, you had mentioned one of the nice things about Fondaparinux is from that sub-Q aspect. Again, we maybe can, can have a little convenience with the dosing, but since they can't go home on an Argatraban drip, what are we doing as far as treatment? Once we, you know, have we treated them enough? When do we stop? Well, I'll be uncomfortable to release the patient if their platelet counts don't come back up. Absolutely. So kind of our threshold is 150,000 because that's the definition of thrombocytopenia is a platelet count less than 150,000. So if it's above that, we say, you know, they're probably resolving in their hit. But we also recognize that even at that point, they're probably still hypercoagulable because of this immune process that makes you uh, more prone to clotting. Usually what happens is once they hit 150,000, we say, you know what, you're done with our gatraban, we'll switch you to something different. And that something different typically and historically was warfarin. And the problem with that is that our gatraban will falsely elevate your INR. So when you initiate warfarin, you can't tell what the patient's INR actually is while they're on our gatraban. 
it's going to be on the scope of this podcast, but there's a bunch of tricks and tips that you can do to kind of figure out what is their INR? Are they ready to be transitioned off of Argatraban? I would encourage the listeners, if they get to that scenario, look at the package insert. The equations that are mentioned in the package insert are absolute garbage, but there is a better approach in terms of you actually hold the Argatraban drip, wait for it to go away, check the INR that would be an Argatraban list. INR, and then using that INR is where you should go in terms of that that bridging process. And I know that you know hits so rare, DOACs are so new, so I'm assuming we don't really have a lot to go off of as far as actually using them. Is that correct? We don't, and there's no reason that you couldn't use a DOAC aside from no evidence supports it, but there's no biologic plausibility why a DOAC wouldn't work just as well as warfarin, for example. And there is always an option to convert them to fondaparinox if the renal function is all good and, you know, they get a full training on how to administer fondaparinox appropriately. So then basically once you've either picked your warfarin, your DOAC, or your fondaparinox, you're going to do that for four weeks in someone who did not have a thrombus caused by their hit or they earn a three-month duration if they did have a thrombus, just like we treat any other DVT or PE for a minimum of three months. So they're going to be on whatever you pick for either four weeks or three months or potentially longer if they had other clots that kind of justified them to have a longer duration of therapy. And this episode of having HIT or even the H-I-T-T, the thrombus that developed from having the HIT, uh, would put the patient at no more heparin for the rest of my life, correct? So this should go on to patient's little booklet on the medication that, you know, you are allergic to heparin. It should be documented at the pharmacies, especially in the medical EHR that patient has allergy to heparin. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is a good rule for, again, making sure your documentation's good, your med recs are done, so we don't have to worry about this mistake. But could we give it again if we had to? So there are very rare circumstances where you might, and most of the data is in patients that had hit a long time ago. They did uh, hit IgG, proved that the antibody was gone. And again, the duration of that antibody is fairly short, 30 to 90-ish days. And if they've done that and they really, really, really want to use heparin, there are case reports where they've done that. But for the most part, unless you absolutely have to use heparin, you're not going to re-expose that patient ever in their lifetime again to heparin, which is why you would add it as an allergy so you get the drug alerts and things like that when anyone tries to order it for that patient. Right. And along with the heparin allergy, the diagnosis of HIT should also reflect into the patient's EHR. And what I love to do when we do have these patients is, at least in our EHR, you can add heparin, you can type in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia as the reaction, but then there's a comment section I love writing in what was the diagnostic process to prove that that patient had HIT because it's so common that people mess up the difference between the SRA or the HIPAA test, the functional assay, and the IgG antibody. I'll provide the date, what the results of those two tests were to really prove that this was not an incorrect diagnosis, that we did all the steps that are necessary to confirm the diagnosis of HIT. Excellent example of detailed documentation, Dr. Kane. <laughs> So the next question is, what's next for our lady that came in with that perforation? So, of course, we're going to stop all of her heparin and low molecular weight heparins, but she has a new DVT, right? So at this point, uh, you have to do something for her. You, You can't just do nothing and wait for testing to come back. So I'm assuming that we're going to have to start her on IV or gatraban and then adjust her gatraban dose based on the APTT. Yeah, or again, I think we could also potentially use fondaparinux there, but, you know, if you're thinking, okay, 75-year-old individual, impaired renal function's probably there, so I guess we're probably leaning more toward our gatraban in that patient. Especially for a female, because she gets that times 0.85 on yeah. her uh, cockcroft gall. It's unlikely that she'll be an excellent candidate, and she may be a poor candidate for fondaparinux. 
And really at that point, we're gonna send off our hit testing for her. So we'll initiate our Gatraban, and at the same time, we'll send off our hit IgG antibody. And just for the sake of discussion, we'll say that that was positive. The next step would be to send either the SRA or the HIPAA functional assay based on your institution, whatever they like there. And we'll say that that was also positive. So now we've gotten our full confirmatory test for HIT for, the, for this particular patient. So I'm pretty sure two things should occur before she leaves the hospital. A, we're going to monitor her platelets and, you know, make sure they come back up. But document the allergy to heparin in the EHR. Like you mentioned, Dr. Kane, detailed documentation with the test results and dates. And then perhaps consider an outpatient anticoagulant plan because she had a DVT minimum of three-month treatment is ensued over here. So we are looking at, you know, either warfarin or um, continuum of fondoparinox if that was what's selected in the hospital. I think that adequately wraps up a good discussion on HIT with a full appreciation of how rare it is and especially the diagnostic component that that's really where the meat and potatoes is from a clinical standpoint to fully appreciate who might have it and how do you start the, the workup for that and interpret the results appropriately. So what, what are some key take-home points that you guys got from this patient case? And my big thing, again, as you said, is the rarity of it, but also the, the fact that there's there's a lot of things that look like HIT and that we can maybe want think it. And so it's really important to rule rule it out. And we have something like a, like a HIT score, 4T score, that could be used to rule things out and again, make sure to do that before we see every patient that comes in with thrombocytopenia and say, oh, that's got to be HIT and we all freak out. Yeah, and then, you know, we can look at the IgG antibodies, but again, there is a high false positive rate behind it. So if you want to confirm that patient has a diagnosis of HIT, then we should consider doing functional assays like the SRA test or the HIPAA test. And if they come positive, it's a true diagnosis of HIT. And then for the listeners, if you want to get a more complete review of the topic, we have an excellent review article by Salters and colleagues published in 2016. We also link to the CHESS guidelines. They're a little bit old and they do include a number of drugs that are no longer available in the U.S. market, but there's still value in some of the recommendations that are in there that are much more detailed than what we have time to get into during the podcast itself. So those references are available at helixtalk.com, episode 80. We love the five-star reviews. We just took a look at those, and we've gotten a lot of those. And if you haven't done a five-star review yet, we'd really dramatically appreciate your help with that. It helps other listeners find the podcast. So with that, I'm Dr. King. I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And as always, study hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.